come this Lord's Day to continue our study of the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Christ delights to do God's will. The ultimate expression of Christ's joy in His redeeming work at Calvary is expressed in Hebrews 12 at verse 2, where we are exhorted to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Christ knew that it would be His glory for all eternity that He had done this in obedience to God, to delight to do His will and with the joy set before Him in it all, to save His loved ones, you and me. The writer of Hebrews next describes the logical outcome of God's will being delighted in by Christ and His fulfilling of it. Hebrews has already described how Christ's blood purges the consciences of His people. The redemption of our transgressions is by means of His death so that we receive the promised everlasting life. Christ has appeared in heaven itself to present before God His own blood by which sacrifice He has put away our sin once for all. But now Hebrews carefully explains how Christ's delight to do God's will brings this about. Christ takes away what God does not delight in, animal sacrifices, and establishes God's will, which He does delight in. Note well that in order for God's will to be established, it is imperative that animal sacrifices be taken away. It is not simply that the animal sacrifices are powerless and ineffective to save us or to take away our sin. No, they must be taken away to establish God's will for our salvation. No doubt this is true because so long as animal sacrifices are still observed, so long as the Jewish believers thought that animal offerings had any relevance to gospel redemption, they could never fully trust in Jesus only. Indeed, soon after Hebrews was written, God literally took away animal sacrifices by using the wicked Roman army to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. There have been no Jewish animal sacrifices for sin since that day. There is an irony in all this that the Romans were also used by God in their evil and malignity to offer up Christ once, once for all, on Calvary's tree. In part, God used external means to take away the former sacrifices and to do God's will in offering up God's Lamb for our crimes. In order to nail down the end and purpose of God's will, it being the saving of His loved ones by the sacrifice of Christ, the writer adds this conclusion, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's sacrifice sets us apart to God, it makes us holy and blameless before Him. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God's will is to save His people from sin and judgment and death. God's will is not like our own wills. We are weak, and God is all-powerful. God gets His will done, always, even though our wills are often thwarted. Christ had already guaranteed the will of God in the saving of His people. In John 6, He made it clear that He came to do God's will. 
and that everyone who God gives to him will come to him. Christ will lose nothing of all of those given to him, but will surely raise them all up at the last day. Everyone who believes on Jesus will certainly have everlasting life. Jesus only intimated in John 6 that he would ensure God's will is done by giving his life for his people. But at Gethsemane, it was very clear that his death, which would take place later that very day, was necessary to accomplish God's will, no matter how horrible it was to Christ in his humanity. As B.B. McKinney put it, Not my will, but thine be done, cried the Father's own Son as he knelt neath the old olive trees. Jesus knew that very soon he would take all the blame of his loved ones in order to redeem us forever. And Jesus was bound and determined to finish God's will no matter what the cost to him would be. The work was finished at Calvary, and yet the outworking of the saving of the Lord's people continues to take place in time. The sacrifice is done and complete, but we all come to Christ in time when the Holy Ghost brings us to Him in faith. The will of God is both already done and still being done, but it is inexorable that it will certainly be done. Peter described this truth in 2 Peter 3 when he answers the question, Why hasn't God destroyed the wicked yet? The answer is glorious, because God is not willing that any of His people should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. God is long-suffering to usward, Peter says. Not to the wicked who will one day be judged, but to God's people that He gave to Christ and that Christ promised He would redeem according to the will of God. God gave us to Christ before we had even been born. Were He to destroy this wicked world, Christ's people who had not yet been born could never be saved and God's will would be thwarted. God would rather endure the haters and scoffers of this old world than that His will to save us through Christ's death should fail for a single one of us. By and by, throughout time, Jesus saves His people that God gave to Him. He finds His lost sheep that the Father gave to Him. This world has lasted this long without the final judgment so that today's saints would surely come to Christ and His sacrifice would save us according to God's will. No wonder we are so comforted by God's appointment of His dear Son to be our faithful high priest, who is sure not to lose a single one of the people that He died to save on the cross and intercedes for even now. Next, the writer of Hebrews points out another contrast between Christ as the high priest and the Aaronic priests. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now notice all the things that never work in the ironic priesthood. His work is never finished. Because it says he oftentimes offereth the same sacrifices. So there is no one and done. There is no final offering under the Aaronic priesthood. There's just a perpetual repetition of the sacrifice of the animals. 
And then notice that his work is never completed because the sacrifices never work to take away sin. And so they are ineffective and thereby continuing as a sign, as a pointer towards Christ's sacrifice, which will take away sin. And then notice finally that the priest never rests. How do we know this? Because they ever stand, don't they? They stand daily ministering and offering oftentimes the sacrifices which can never take away sins. And if you read through Leviticus, you will see that the priest's life was not a happy lot because he spent large portions of his life up and about, walking about, trotting back and forth, slaying and skinning and boiling and burning on the fire and changing out of these clothes into those clothes and washing himself ritually, repeatedly, multiple times a day. And then the next day gets up and starts all over again. It is a demonstration of the futility of any sacrifice other than Jesus. And that was one of the purposes of the Aaronic priesthood, to show that even in the idealized world of human priests, human offerings, human sacrifices, even when it's done at the commandment of God, it still doesn't take away sin, does it? But notice what is missing here. He stands daily. He repeats all of this over and over again. If you go read the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple, the temple design, you will see that Moses, reporting what God told him to report, goes over again and again and again in tedious detail to some of us all the ways in which the tabernacle and then later on for Solomon the temple was to be designed and executed, carried out, and all the furniture that was made the lavers for washing, the lampstands for holding up the lights in the sanctuary, the altars that were made, and all the tools that had to be used to keep it and to tend it and to clean it, the curtains, the doors, the tables, for example, for the showbread offering. There was a mercy seat atop the ark upon which the blood was sprinkled, cooking utensils and pots, poles and boards and rings and sockets, all sorts of things, but what was missing? There are no chairs there anywhere. No benches, no couches, no lazy boy recliners, nowhere for anybody to sit down. There weren't even a throne there, was there? Remember when Solomon made the temple, he didn't even put a place there for him to be seated in his royal gowns, did he? If he wanted to do that, he'd need to go back to one of his many palaces with the ivory lions attached and so forth and etc. There were no chairs because the priests didn't have a chance to sit down. They were always to be up and about offering the sacrifices, making the atonement for the sins of the people which never ended because they never worked. There was no rest for the priest because his sacrificing work is never done. And why is that? Because it is ultimately in vain. But there are chairs 
where our great high priest is. In fact, there are thrones there for our great Savior to sit upon. And this is what we see in the next little phrase in Hebrews. He not only sits upon a throne in glory, but He reigns there in His exalted glory. See it, Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 11. Every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So now we know there are chairs in the glory of God. There are thrones there. At least there's one for Christ to be seated on and from which He reigns. Now this harkens back to the very first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Well, you will recall it says that after Christ had purged our sins by Himself, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it had been foretold that Christ would sit down. And it had been foretold that it would be after He had purged our sins. And now here in Hebrews chapter 10, it makes it all the more clear that He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down on the right hand of God. So the means by which He had by Himself purged our sin in Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 3 is now explained that it was by His one sacrifice for sin. And then He sat down at the right hand of God. Unlike the Aaronic priests, Christ's sacrifice has come to an end. And having been offered once, note well that He offered His sacrifice for sins. For sins. This is an important point because there are heretics amongst us today who don't believe that Christ died in the place of sinners for their sins. They don't believe that our sins were laid on Jesus and He was punished in our place. No, they have all kind of weird Greek Orthodox mystical notions that Christ's sacrifice restores the icon of humanity by His death and resurrection. Well, what does that mean? Who knows? It's a mystery. It means whatever your mind stuffs into it to mean. But better to believe that than that Christ died for our sins and that our sins were laid on Him and that by means of His sacrifice He discharges all the judgment for the sins of His people. Oh no, we can't have that. They believe that Christ redeems us without purging our sin. But by some other mystical means of redemption, which is decoupled from the notion of paying a price of redemption. And they go back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament and they mine the words back there to prove that redemption doesn't have nothing to do with paying no price. That it's something entirely different. But in that they're completely wrong. But rather, Christ offered Himself once for sin. And then He sat down because the sacrifice was done. Aaron's sacrifices were offered for sin perpetually, but they could never take away sin. Therefore, they had to be redone and re-redone over 
and over and over again. And this is why God doesn't delight in those sacrifices because they never work. He delights only in the sacrifice of Jesus as our high priest because He offers one sacrifice for our sin and then sits down because His sacrifice takes away our sin for now and forever. But Christ's sacrifice was once for all for sin and indeed took away our sins. And therefore Christ sat down. He sat down. This says so much about the efficacy of Christ's offering. No wonder Horatius Bonner wrote those glorious words, done is the work that saves, once and forever done, finished the righteousness that clothes the unrighteous ones. The love that blesses us below is flowing freely to us now. Christ's work has done the job of saving His people and blessings flow from it. While Aaron's work never ended because it never took away the sin. And so He could never sit down in the presence of God. Jesus' sacrifice for sin is so overwhelmingly better than all the sacrifices of the law that He has finished our redemption at the cross. And so now, sits down. And now let me say this, this is why we can rest from our labors at self-righteousness, at law-keeping. Because Jesus has sat down, the work of our salvation is finished and sure. Lost men take over the duties of the priest, you see, and they labor to establish their own righteousness. They, they generate their own sacrifices. They appoint their own priests. And they work and labor and seek to establish their own righteousness. And therefore, they can never rest unless they're deluded or self-deluded and think they've reached the high mark, and certainly there are some who do. Like Aaron, they can never rest either. So really, it doesn't matter if your priest is Aaron or anybody else. Somebody you set up, some Roman Catholic priest, no matter who it is. Some pagan priest in the darkest jungles, it doesn't matter. None of them can ever rest because none of them have a sacrifice that can ever save or take away sin. But Jesus said to us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And after He had done the hard work on Calvary's tree, you see now, in a sense, He takes His rest. He sits down too. And if our priest can sit down, then we can rest in His love and rest in the work that He did to strip away from us all of our crimes to take away our sin, to lay upon us His obedience and righteousness. Our justification is accomplished and our crimes are discharged by the blood of Jesus shed once for the forgiveness of sin. And so He sits down. And so we rest in Him. But see the place where our high priest now sits. It is no mean chair in a poor location, is it? but rather it's at the right hand of God. That's where our high priest sits. Can you imagine Imagine the ennoblement, if you will, of humanity in this very fact that the God-man who is forever incarnate in our humanity is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. He's fit to be there because He is the Son of God. 
because he is God himself, and yet he is also man. And that's why the Puritans said that once the incarnation had taken place and Christ had ascended into glory after his death and resurrection, there would always be a man in the glory. The man Christ Jesus. The God-man Christ Jesus. He sits at the very right hand of the majesty on high. Our blessed man of Calvary is at the right hand of power and glory, and he's there right now for us. This end of Christ as our high priest, at the right hand of God, this fact of Christ ending up as our high priest at the right hand of God, is no surprise to careful readers of the Scripture because it is woven into the foretelling of Messiah's exaltation in His priesthood. You remember that Christ foretold this truth at His trial. and We read that text this morning in Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter. The chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put Him to death and found none, for many bore false witness against Him, but their witness agreed not together, and there arose certain and bare false witness against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. What, remember what Christ actually said, You will destroy the temple of My body, you wicked people, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now you see here that Christ says, I am Messiah, and one day you will see me sitting at the right hand of the power of God. So this is a way that Christ has made himself to be God. And they understood that's what he was saying. That's why they accused him of blasphemy and guilty of death. But all he was doing was answering their questions under oath truthfully. But therefore they crucified Jesus because he is God and they denied him his right and title to the truth. They killed, as Paul said, the Lord of glory. And so our Lamb was slain for us there on Calvary's tree. So here is a testimony by Christ that He is God, He is Messiah, and one day they will see Him seated at the right hand of power. So in Hebrews 10, you see the writer is harking back to what Jesus had promised at His kangaroo court trial. That I am Messiah, I am God. And one day you will see me seated at the right hand of God. And you remember that the martyr Stephen made mention of this. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, surrounded by glory. So he was the first witness to the coming of Christ's promise at his trial that he would one day be at the right hand of the glory of God. 
But now he is enthroned in majesty, you see. So there was that fact that Christ foretold he would be exalted and seated at the right hand of God. And then secondly, Hebrews has already established Christ as God upon his throne. Not only the text that I mentioned, that after he had purged our sins by himself, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But consider what happens next in Hebrews chapter 1. Being made, that is speaking of Christ, so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And you remember when Christ was born. There was a whole heavenly host of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So you see, this promise was fulfilled and recorded in Luke's Gospel. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So here the writer of Hebrews proves from the Old Testament, from the psalmist, that the Messiah, that Christ, the Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, is actually God of very God. That He loves righteousness. He hates iniquity. God has anointed Him with the oil of gladness. And then verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt remain. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment and as a vesture. Shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed, but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So you see, Hebrews from the very beginning had established the Old Testament promise that Christ, the Messiah, would one day be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, he said that, what, two or three times in this, this one little text, that he would be seated at the right hand of God because he is God. And yet he is God incarnate in our flesh. And deity of Christ is proved by these texts he is our Creator, but we knew Him not. And then you note well this remembrance of how Christ was promised by His Father that He would sit on His right hand until He made His enemies His footstool. And now, after the sacrifice is made, we find in Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till His enemies be made His footstool. Not only is Christ seated in the heavens enthroned in majesty at the right hand of God, but He is waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. Hereby the writer of Hebrews makes clear the link between Christ as our great high priest and Christ as the God who rules from this great throne in which He is now seated. And this reminds us, doesn't it, 
of the promise when God made Christ our high priest forever by an oath that cannot be broken. It was in the context of Christ being seated at the right hand of God until He made His enemies His footstool. All the way back to Psalm 110, which we know so well. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It turns out that what the writer of Hebrews is telling us about Christ, that He's made this sacrifice take away our sin as our great high priest. And now He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. You see, He is describing how now this promise of Psalm 110 has been fulfilled not only in the making of Christ a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but also in seating Him in power and glory and promising Him the subjugation of all His enemies beneath His feet. Hereby the writer of Hebrews makes this connection exceedingly clear. But have you noticed the connection between all this and the identity of Christ as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek For as we know, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. That's how he's described in the book of Genesis. And you remember, he brings bread and wine to give to Abraham and to the people that were with him, just as Christ has given us bread and wine to picture His body and His blood by which we are redeemed. That is, to picture His his sacrifice to God as our great high priest. But also Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, and his name means the king of righteousness. So you see that in making Christ a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, implicit in that, and not just implicit, but plainly annexed and stated with that, is that Christ will be exalted to be the king and ruler and seated on the throne next to the majesty of power in glory waiting for His foes to be placed under His feet. And so He is not only a priest forever, but He is a king-priest. Or you might say He is a priest-king just like Melchizedek was. And note the comparison of the interests of these kings was peace and righteousness. So that the oath of God to Christ in His humanity, to be our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek includes Christ's exaltation as our King of righteousness and of peace as well, similar to the type of priest-king that Melchizedek was all those years before. All of which proves, for the Jewish believers reading Hebrews, the identity and work of Jesus Christ as the priest that saves us from sin by the sacrifice of Himself, and as our great King, who is our righteousness. As Jeremiah recorded all those years ago, what shall His name be called? 
the Lord our righteousness. Remember that when Christ came lowly on a colt, that He was bringing with Him salvation and righteousness. The one who takes away our sin before God is the very same one who lays His perfect obedience and righteousness upon us as our King, as our Ruler, so that the comfort God gives to us by His oath to Christ to be our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is seen to be even greater and more wonderful than we first believed. No wonder Horatius Bonner continues his great hymn, Enthroned in Majesty. The high priest sits within. His precious blood once shed has made and keeps us clean. With boldness let us now draw near the blood of Christ has banished every fear. And that is the hope that we have. That is the rejoicing we have. That is the comfort that we have by God in His great oath to Christ to be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It means a whole lot more than you might first see in reading these texts. But when Christ had done the sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He enters into possession of his great kingly duty and still stays our priest to make intercession for us. And if you study, you will find that while the sacrifices can't be made sitting down, and that's why there were no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. The intercession can be made sitting down. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Romans 8, 34, and makes intercession for us there. Praise God. Well, around this table, we have a picture of that time when Christ overthrew the useless animal sacrifices and made that one offering for sin for us. And now we find that He's seated in power and glory, that He's exalted above the heavens, that He's King of kings and Lord of lords, all by right, all by title of that oath that God made to Him that He would be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And He is become our righteousness our salvation unto every one who calls upon His name and trusts in the name of Christ. Praise God. Well, let's give thanks for the symbols that Christ left us to picture the sacrifice that He made and that we might recognize that offering for sin that He made and that we might recall that now He's seated in glory and one day He will come and take us to be with Him forever, to be in His presence physically, even as we partake of this feast in symbolic form, one day we will see with our own eyes what these symbols have represented to us for all of these centuries and now even millennia. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ that made an atonement for us and that allowed Him finally to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O oh God our Father, we rejoice in 
the body of Christ that you clothe him with, that he might have a body in which our sins could be judged on the cross in our place so that we might go free from the wrath, the wrath that Jesus did not escape. For for Jesus, there was no lamb to be substituted. He was that final. He was the end of the road of the lambs for sacrifice. He did away with the animal offerings by the sacrifice of himself. And we thank you that he's exalted, that he's seated at your right hand, that he's right there close by to make intercession for us, his people, to watch out for our interests, to plead the blood of the Lamb in the face of all of our failures and delinquencies and disobediences and lapses and weakness. He is there upholding us sustaining us and interceding for us. And we thank you that you cannot look upon the blood of Christ and hold against his people any of our sins, that you see us in the righteousness of Christ, in his beauty, in his satisfaction, in his exaltation. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. And the scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Well, let's stand and sing number 52, Horatius Bonner's hymn, Done is the work that saves then to the Lamb once slain be glory, praise, and power, who died and lives again, who liveth evermore, who loved us, cleansed us by His blood, and made us kings and priests to God. Number 52.